Hello, this is Daniel Jordan, Rams board member at large and an incoming intern in emergency medicine and internal medicine at Henry Ford Hospital in Detroit. We at Rams recognize that many of us, including myself, have been away from the clinical space for months now. As such, it has been hard to keep up with clinical information regarding COVID-19. This has been compounded by contradicting news stories, inconsistent guidance from the government, and even retracted scientific studies. As such, we at Rams have sought to prepare a podcast for new interns and returning medical students to provide the basic need-to-know clinical information regarding COVID-19 to ensure you're prepared for the return to clinical care. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Jennifer Stahl. Welcome, Dr. Stahl. Thank you, Daniel, for inviting me, and I hope this will be a very educational podcast to those who are listening. Dr. Jennifer Stahl is an assistant professor in both emergency medicine and critical care departments at East Carolina University. She completed a combined emergency medicine internal medicine residency, followed by a fellowship in critical care medicine. She works as dual faculty in both the intensive care units and emergency department, where she holds multiple roles, including medical director for the medical ICU, associate division chief for the division of pulmonary and critical care medicine, associate program director for the EMIM combined residency, and associate program director for the pulmonary and critical care fellowship. Her interest includes sepsis, septic shock, mechanical ventilation, critical care in the ED, ARDS, and medical education. Her broad experience in emergency medicine, internal medicine, and critical care will bring a holistic expertise to our podcast and provide a great resource to help answer some of our questions. As well, I have with us Dr. Larissa May. Welcome, Dr. May. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for including me. Dr. Larissa May is a professor of emergency medicine and director of emergency department and outpatient antibiotic stewardship at UC Davis. Having received her Master of Science in Public Health and Emerging Infectious Diseases, as well as her Master of Science in Health Sciences and Clinical and Translational Research, she is a nationally recognized expert in antibiotic stewardship in the emergency department. Her research interests center on the application of rapid molecular diagnostic assays, behavioral economics, and clinical guidelines aimed at improving antibiotic stewardship and patient safety in the ED and urgent care settings. She has served on committees and task force focused on antibiotic stewardship, emergency preparedness, and infectious disease surveillance, including with the CDC, NIH, and IDSI, all of which make her extremely knowledgeable and a great resource to have talk with us about the ongoing pandemic. Thanks so much to both of you for being here. So let's jump right in with the basics. Dr. May, what is COVID-19? So COVID-19 is a viral illness that is caused by a novel coronavirus, similar to the original SARS virus of 2002, which is known as SARS-CoV-2. It tends to cause viral symptoms such as flu-like illness, shortness of breath, chest discomfort, and in some cases, for some unfortunate people, much more severe illness, including pneumonia and a whole variety of complications that we'll get into later. So how is COVID spread? So we think, although there's a lot of controversy, that COVID is mainly spread the way other coronaviruses are, through droplet and, to a lesser extent, contact causes. There is some controversy about airborne spread. However, most of the studies that have been done have been modeling studies or engineering studies where they have documented that it can be aerosolized but not necessarily infectious in that case. So we think the main route of spread really is droplet. Wow, okay. Can you briefly just touch on proper PPE? So again, there's some controversy around this, but in general, when seeing patients and not doing aerosol generating procedures, and we can talk about that a little bit later, we should be wearing at least a surgical mask and eye protection, as well as contact precautions. So you'd be wearing a gown, for example, when seeing patients and gloves. So basically four things. You'd be having a surgical mask and face shield, 
as well as a gown and gloves. And then if you're going to be doing any high-risk procedures, for example, you're going to be intubating someone or you're going to be using high-flow oxygen or generating aerosols through nebulization or other procedures, then you would basically want to be in airborne precautions. So in that case, you're going to be using an N95 or PAPR device in addition to droplet contact. Got it. Dr. Stahl, do you want to talk about what the signs and symptoms of COVID-19 are? Happy to. Signs and symptoms of COVID-19 can be varied, with the most common being constitutional symptoms, typically of fevers, headaches, myalgias. Upper respiratory symptoms can be prominent as well, mostly with symptoms of shortness of breath, cough. It's typically a non-productive cough and then sometimes chest discomfort. GI symptoms are also prominently noted with nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea being the three common. And then another particular symptom is anosmia uh, or loss of smell. So a lot of patients are coming in with that complaint as well. While these are the most common presenting symptoms, there's also other presentations as well. We can kind of get into the other things that we're seeing with COVID, but in the event of trying to screen for these things when you're back in clinicals, there's lots of different presentations that come around with cardiovascular neurologic events that come in with COVID patients. In particular, cardiomyopathies, STEMI-like presentations, arrhythmias, encephalopathies, cerebral vascular accidents, to name a few. There's an underlying disease state of hypercoagulability, so anything that comes along with that, meaning ischemic strokes, MIs, any sort of anginal type symptoms all kind of come into play for signs and symptoms. Chest pain, encephalopathy, and stroke presentations. While those are all different symptoms that can come around, there's also a subgroup of patients that are asymptomatic, so they don't have any symptoms at all. They may have not developed the symptoms yet, meaning they present for whatever, and they haven't actually developed confounding symptoms later on, or they're harboring the virus and they're able to transmit the virus. So they can be asymptomatic either early or just asymptomatic in general. Either way, they're very high risk for transmitting the virus. And that's kind of what the signs and symptoms are. No, that was awesome. But I have to ask, what is this desatting phenomenon we keep hearing about where patients' pulse ox is quite low, but the respiratory appearance doesn't correlate? I'm happy you asked that because it's quite an interesting phenomenon. These patients that you're referring to as far as the desatting but look fine, we call these the happy hypoxis or the happy hypoxemics. They can be sitting in a chair, playing on their mobile device, watching TV, no respiratory distress symptoms at all, but their pulse oximeter is reading 80%. What's interesting about COVID is that it has a a number of different disease courses, meaning that every patient doesn't act the same. What we have found, at least in the sort of the ICU setting, or really when we get down to the lung failure setting, we found that there's potentially two different phenotypes of COVID lung disease. This is theoretical, so this is not published. Uh, I think there was a paper that was being published on this, but not quite all the way accepted. But there's a theory that there's two different types, the H and the L type. The L type is what we deem the happy hypoxemic group. And what that means is that they basically have a physiology of lung disease that's more of a shunt physiology. The theory is that the virus attacks at the level of the alveoli and causes a shunt process to happen where you're not able to oxygenate that area with pulmonary flow or pulmonary blood flow. So it creates a shunt. So these patients have normal ventilation, meaning normal lungs, but their hypoxic level is very severe. So Basically, the damaged alveoli that can be caused by the direct viral damage, there's also some theories about fiber deposits and microthrombi. Either way, the damaged alveoli do not receive blood flow from the capillary bed and therefore creating the deoxygenated blood to flow through that damaged lung and creating the shunt. The lung tissues themselves are, like I said, normal compliance relatively. Therefore, ventilation is normal, but the shunt is actually causing the hypoxemia. 
because the lung compliance is normal, these patients do not present with tachypnea or any sort of signs of respiratory distress because they're ventilating well. They just have low oxygen levels. For that reason, they do require high levels of oxygen support, but not necessarily a lot of ventilatory support in that initial phenotype. There's also a theory about having compensatory vasoconstriction of the pulmonary vasculature that also kind of allows for some compensation of the shunt. So therefore, they have a severe shunt, but they're able to compensate with this pulmonary vasoconstriction. So they're able to have this 80% SAT, but still be sort of looking well clinically. So once again, these patients have normal lung compliance. Typically, they have this shunt physiology going on, and they also have a normal dead space. And because they don't have any increased dead space, there's no extra respiratory drive. Therefore, they're not in respiratory distress. That kind of leads to this happy hypoxemic who basically has a shunt physiology from the damage at the alveoli level. So I kind of mentioned that there's an H and an L type. So this is a spectrum of disease. We see that there's patients who are the happy hypoxemics just sitting there on high levels of oxygen all the way to the patient who's ventilated and doing really poorly in an ARDS-like syndrome. So that's kind of where we go from the L type into sort of this H type phenomenon where that is more like the ARDS type picture in lung physiology. So when the patients progress to the H type, we call that the H type because they more respond to the higher peeps. This is likely progression from the L type, although they can just present with H type as well. This resembles more of a typical ARDS type picture or lung compliance at that point in time. So they both have ventilation and oxygenation difficulties, and therefore they're going to have that more symptoms of respiratory distress, impending respiratory failure. These patients typically will respond more to peep and they typically need mechanical ventilation to support them because they are technically or they're quote-unquote sicker. So that's kind of the sort of the description of why we have these happy hypoxemics. Mostly just to summarize that is from a, a shunt physiology with normal lung compliance and so they're therefore able to sit there on their iPad or phone device with an oxygen sat of 80% and looking happy. I feel like I just got transported back to second year physiology. <laughs> a lot of physiology. <laughs> All right. So somebody comes in the ED who we're concerned has COVID-19. We've heard a lot about testing in the news. Dr. May, where are we on that? How fast are these tests resulting and what about their accuracy? So we certainly have heard a lot about testing on the news. I'm going to focus first on diagnostic testing for SARS-CoV-2, which is the virus that causes COVID-19. Most of those tests are molecular tests, meaning that they're PCR-based. They look at the RNA And I think we've heard a lot about false positives and false negatives. So initially, early on in the outbreak, there was information coming out of China with up to 40% false negatives. I think we really need to think in terms of performance characteristics of the tests. Typically, the PCR tests do have very high sensitivity and specificity, especially if they're being done in-house or on some of the more common platforms. However, we need to remember that there is also positive and negative predictive value which depends on the actual, not just the sensitivity and specificity, but it also depends on the prevalence. So if you're in a low prevalence area, you have to think about whether that negative test you've had may be an actual false negative, or if you have a positive test, it's much more likely to be a a true positive, right? So you need to kind of think about where you are in your pandemic and what's going on with with cases around. So there are also some antigen-based tests that are being developed that are much faster. So, you know, some of these might result in minutes versus the hours that is typical for the PCR-based tests. But in that case, you're often sacrificing sensitivity for speed. And so that's also an issue with some of the, the common tests that have been used initially. For most of the tests that are being done in reference labs or being done, for example, in our hospital-based lab, they typically take uh, about a couple hours or up to three hours to run. Some of them are one-hour tests, but the issue is in terms of reagents, we've had a lot of shortages of reagents in media, and so typically these have to be batched, 
so that we're not wasting reagents and media and swabs have also been an issue. So really the turnaround time is not just dependent on how long it takes to run the test, but how the lab is running the test and whether it has to be sent out. So typically in our hospital right now, we are getting results within 24 to 36 hours maximum. It could be that results are taking a bit longer if things are being sent out to an outside lab, it might take a few days. And then we also have to think about test capacity. Right now, most of the PCR tests require a nasopharyngeal swab. We have seen some false negatives in critically ill patients, perhaps because they no longer have the virus in their NP area. They're not actually shedding it or they're shedding it intermittently. And if they're on a ventilator, you know, you may need to get a, a deep specimen like from a BAL to confirm the diagnosis. So if you have a high clinical index of suspicion, then you really need to think we might need to do more testing. So that's basically PCR. They are trying to validate some other methods now, like using saliva, but it's looking like it will be hard to get FDA authorization for asymptomatic patients, but that might be an option in the future for patients that have symptoms to have a less invasive way of testing. All right. So while we're on that subject, Dr. May, can you just briefly talk about the antibody testing we're hearing about? Yeah, so I think antibody testing is the most controversial. I think initially people were hopeful that we could have something called immunity passports where if you had antibodies documented to the new coronavirus that maybe you could be deemed immune. I think there's a lot that's not understood about antibody testing. So first of all, do we mount an antibody response? And are those neutralizing antibodies? Meaning do those antibodies actually potentially protect you from future infection? There's some Smaller recent studies coming out suggesting that, especially in people that are asymptomatic, may not be mounting a lasting immunity response. We also have to remember there's other mechanisms of immunity, like cell-mediated immunity. I think the biggest challenge is that there's been very little exposure to this virus generally in the population, except perhaps in the hotspots. And so if you have a prevalence of antibodies of less than 5%, there may be some cross-reactivity with some of the other human coronaviruses that circulate every year. If you have a test that's, let's say, 90% sensitive for IgM and IgG, and then you have a less than 5% prevalence of exposure in the population, you know, you're more, you're almost equally likely to have a false positive as to actually a true positive. So I don't think we can draw any conclusions yet. There are studies ongoing looking at immune responses over time. I'm sure soon we'll hear more about neutralizing antibodies. There remains a lot to be questioned and, and a lot of things that we don't know. And so I think for now, take that with a grain of salt, that antibody testing has its limitations. And then the other issue is that we can't use it as a diagnostic test. So if you want a diagnosis, you really need to go for the PCR test. Okay. So going back to our uh, suspected COVID patient in the emergency department, we're doing our workup. Are there specific indications for chest x-ray or CT in suspected COVID-19 patients? And what are we looking for on these? In terms of imaging, we've basically used the same criteria that we would use for any other patient with suspected pneumonia or, for example, suspected PE. In general, you know, if the patient is well-appearing and you suspect COVID and they have a normal lung exam and their vitals aren't concerning, there isn't necessarily an indication for a chest X-ray. I think for CT, in our emergency department, we've pretty much been doing it if we're concerned about a PE. But in terms of diagnostic tests, now that we have these good PCR tests, we really don't need to do a chest X-ray or CT for an actual diagnosis, looking for example, for things like ground glass opacities, we still need to look at the risk benefit of over imaging people and also protecting our scanners and limiting exposure. So I think my take home is in the emergency department. If you think the patient needs an x-ray for any reason or a CT, then do it for that, but not specifically for COVID diagnosis. Anything to add, Dr. Stahl? 
Yeah, I would say I'd absolutely agree with what you said. I think when you have a COVID positive patient who doesn't have any respiratory symptoms, I think it's reasonable to leave it at that and use your your regular guidance that way. I think when there's a patient who has COVID symptoms and is probably on a little bit of oxygen, whatever, you can get a screening x-ray mainly so that you're sort of ruling out the other differentials, meaning a lot of these patients will come in with secondary infections and that's what's tipped them over. So low bar pneumonia, sometimes they'll pop a PE, your regular sort of workup for shortness of breath and, and respiratory symptoms. So I think that's where the chest x-ray X-ray and imaging comes in. Typically, what we're going to see on a chest X-ray from COVID itself is going to be bilateral infiltrates, which is, as you can imagine, a little bit nonspecific. It can be lots of different disease processes causing bilateral infiltrates, things like pneumonitis, things like ARDS, things like pulmonary edema, stuff like that. So I think it's a good screening tool to look into your differential, but it's not going to be a diagnostic thing unless you put that together with a positive test and symptoms. I think the other part of it is if you have, and this Dr. May, I'd like you to kind of weigh on this, but if you have a patient who comes in with uh, respiratory symptoms, COVID, and then has some bilateral infiltrates but looks well, and they're not on any oxygen, maybe they're at lowest 96% on their pulse ox, that kind of may help you determine, do I give some anticipatory guidance? Do I admit them for observation? Where is this process going to go? Because what we're seeing in some of these patients is that, is that they're presenting at the time of the fevers and maybe some of the nausea or whatever, and that hypoxia progresses. And so if you have some imaging if you have something on imaging, does that give you a little sense of maybe I just tell this person to be very aware, maybe have a follow-up check-in, come back if they have any worsening shortness of breath to get rechecked because they may be at risk for worsening respiratory failure. So I think that's maybe the other time I see the x-ray to be a little bit helpful. I don't know if you see that much in your emergency department. We've been kind of doing that just based off of kind of risk assessments and things like that when they're positive with respiratory symptoms. In our emergency department, we're testing all symptomatic patients, you know, that have any suspected signs and symptoms of COVID. And we're testing asymptomatic patients that are being transferred out, for example, to psychiatric facilities. And we're also testing all patients that are being admitted to the hospital for any reason. So we're, we're pretty broadly testing. I think many of the patients that we're seeing now, compared to the initial part of the epidemic, we were doing a lot more chest x-rays and we were admitting a lot more of these folks. I think Unfortunately, some of this is going to depend on what the healthcare capacity is at the time that you're seeing the patient. You know, if your ICU is going to be full and if your wards are getting full, then the anticipatory guidance may be reasonable, especially in young patients that don't have risk factors, that maybe have a little mild pneumonia. They might be able to self-manage at home unless you have other concerns for social reasons. And so I think it just depends. Also, folks that are going back to high-risk facilities, like, for example, congregate living facilities might need to be admitted. If they're COVID positive, that's another reason that we might have to kind of have a different strategy depending on the groups. But I would agree that I think anticipatory guidance can be reasonable just as for any other pneumonia. We do know that most of these folks do end up doing okay, but some of them will have increasing oxygen requirements. And I've heard that in some places they're sending patients home with like their own pulse oxes. So we haven't done that, but that may be a strategy where unfortunately, if hotspots do continue to pop up, especially in dense areas where there's limited capacity that we might have to think about doing things like that. We've been doing that on a few patients doing the pulse ox to go home with and monitoring real close. Definitely a new era right now in the emergency department. What I was also going to comment on is the CT scan. So from the inpatient side of things, the CT scans, I think initially, like you talked about, before we really had robust testing and ability to do this, we were trying to find any way to diagnose this thing. And the characteristic finding on CT scans was ground glass opacities bilateral. 
And so they were doing a lot of CT scans. That's kind of where all that hype came from. Now that we've got more testing available, the CT scans really aren't that helpful in the setting of what is it? Meaning that when you talk about ground glass opacities, what are ground glass opacities? They're also called GGOs. You'll hear this a lot when you're in medical school and in training. GGOs are basically hyperattenuation on a CT scan. And it basically is, if you look through a piece of glass and look at the tissue underneath it, it looks like you're looking through a piece of glass, a ground glass. It can be pathognomonic for a number of different disease processes, anything from inflammation to infection to interstitial disease. And so it really is not specific at all. It just kind of shows you that there's some lung process going on. So just doing it off a CT scan without a COVID test really doesn't help unless you have really good pretest probability with your symptoms, a positive contact, blah, blah, blah. We have gone away from getting CT scans. The only time we really get CT scans is if we're looking for any other differential of the diagnosis, meaning like you talked about PEs, super infections, pleural fusions, pneumos, all that kind of stuff. So really the CT scans kind of gone out of favor, at least most of the time in the inpatient side. I think it's also interesting like how at the beginning we were sometimes seeing patients that had ground glass opacities that had had some infectious symptoms the week before and they didn't really have many symptoms and the degree of findings on the lung CT doesn't necessarily seem to correlate with how they do. Like you could be asymptomatic and still have some findings, which is interesting to me. And then the other thing to remember is not everything is COVID. So right now in California, we're testing and finding about 5% pretty steady rate of positives. But all these people may have flu-like symptoms. And I think when we first started looking at this, at the beginning of the pandemic, we were noting that a lot of patients when we were doing respiratory virus panels had human metanumavirus or RSV, which can also cause fairly similar lung findings. So just remember that not all pneumonia is going to be COVID. Not all flu-like illness is going to be COVID. I think it's going to get a little bit challenging in the fall to kind of figure out as we get into our respiratory season, who's likely to have a false negative and positive. But Um, Just keep other things in your differential because it's not all going to be COVID. In fact, most of it's not. Agree. (laughs) All right, back to our patients. So we've ordered our basic workup labs and obviously the COVID-19 testing. Are there any other labs we should be ordering? I'm thinking CRP or ESR. Yeah, to start off with your basic labs, Definitely a CBC will help. Typically, the white blood cell count will be normal, but you will see lymphopenia in a number of these patients, so low lymphocyte counts. The BMP can be helpful for any renal dysfunction. Typically, there was a lot of patients going into renal failure early on with this virus. Doing those uh, basic labs are definitely what you need to do. As far as extra labs, acute phase reactants like you're talking about and inflammatory markers are helpful more in when we're dealing with the hyperinflammatory response state. And that's going to be more something on the inpatient side. A lot of different centers and a lot of inpatient units are following those markers. What we're doing with the markers, it can be varied. There's a lot of controversy of what we do with these markers. But in general, with COVID, there is this heightened immune, um, inflammatory response that happens, meaning that CRPs are severely elevated, ferritin. Uh, LDH, sometimes the LFTs, D-dimers. So those are all labs that we typically will at least start off with on an inpatient admission and then trend them. And if they trend nowhere and the patient's doing better, then you kind of leave it off. And if they're trending up and they're clinically getting worse and you start thinking about some of these other ancillary therapies that are, are a little controversial, but this is kind of how we're trying to track this inflammatory response that we're seeing. D-dimers in, in general are markers that have been followed and there's a number of anticoagulation 
protocols that have been started for not only prophylaxis, but also therapeutic based off of D-dimer levels and how they trend. So a lot of the big centers, Mount Sinai had put out a big anticoagulation regimen and, and things like that. And so D-dimers are very helpful as far as labs to get, as well as other hypercoagulable studies, including PTs, PTTs, INRs, particularly my favorite's a TAG panel just to know what their actual body cascade is. Other things, if they have any sort of cardiac symptoms, as we talked about, myocarditis and cardiomyopathies can present in this disease. Getting things like troponins and BNPs give it if there's clinical symptoms to go with that. So basically the basic labs and then inflammatory markers and then getting labs based off of your symptoms as well. All right. Sounds good. Going to treatment. What are the basics and are they different from other airway infections? Not different. And what the basic is, is supportive care. I can't explain more enough that the only thing that we're really seeing across the board is really good supportive care, meaning in the respiratory patient, you're going to give them respiratory support, whether it's high flow oxygen, if you're giving them non-invasive like CPAP, or if you're doing mechanical ventilation and intubating them. So really the oxygen therapy for the respiratory symptoms, everything else is going to be supporting their blood pressure, supporting their kidneys, supporting coagulation cascade if need be, things like that. There's no real difference between other airway infections. A lot of the media and everything equates this to a sort of influenza virus. And it does in the sense that it causes a lot of the different complications like your myocarditis, your super infections, all that type of stuff. And so really we're treating it very similar to other respiratory viruses in the sense of supportive care. We're going to go into some of the heavier debated medications and things like that. But as far as basic support, it's all about the same. Sounds good. And I know we talked about it a little earlier with the atypical presentations, the happy hypoxic and stuff. Are the indications for intubation in COVID patients changed at all? Absolutely. I thought this was a very interesting history of medicine that we experienced. In the first month, we were intubating everyone. Everyone said as soon as they hit a certain level of oxygen, you intubate them early because you don't want them to crump because they are very sick and they're unstable. And so people were getting intubated left and right, not only in the United States, but worldwide. I think we have changed most things that I'm reading and things that we're doing at our own institute, we have changed our sort of spin on when to intubate these patients. We've sort of identified this group of happy hypoxics or happy hypoxemics that are happy. If you can bridge them through with some really good supportive care and oxygen therapy, they actually do okay without having to be intubated. And so we've gone through past intubating everyone in a controlled environment to now intubating when necessary. It's still in a controlled environment, but that has definitely changed. So we're intubating later. We are watching the disease process unfold. We're utilizing high flow oxygen, a lot higher flows than we're typically started. A lot of places are starting to use CPAP and non-invasive measures to really bridge them through. At the end of the day, if they're in respiratory distress, like we talked about flipping phenotypes and getting more ventilation issues, then going on mechanical ventilation is probably what's going to end up happening. But a lot of these patients get through with just some good supportive care. Okay. And we've seen a in the news where there's special mechanisms and ways people are trying to innovate and come up with ways to innovate. Can you briefly cover any differences in the procedure of innovating, given the extremely infectious nature of COVID? Absolutely. I think at the beginning of all this, everyone wore 18,000 pieces of equipment with HEPA filters in the room. I mean, it was, it was insane how we were intubating these patients. Of course, if you had the PPE, if you didn't have PPE, you were just doing what you could. But if you had the, all the equipment, I mean, people were really trying to protect everything you could. And so the best thing I can say is you want to protect yourself and you want to protect your staff. So you don't want the rest of our therapists not to have the PPE they need. And so you try to do these intubations with coverage, as Dr. May kind of explained, that we're airborne at for the time of a procedure like an intubation. We've seen anything from N95s to putting on pappers and cappers, which are the airway helmets, 
or the negative pressure helmet, sorry. We've done plastic boxes where you put it over the patient to try to intubate underneath them. We've done plastic bags, all these different contraptions, and all of them work in different ways and have their ups and downs. I think the main point is making sure that you're safe and the staff is safe. You do your intubation, you try to optimize your environment, you try to avoid bag valve mask as much as possible for the aerosolization of factor. So if you can pre-oxygenate them via a nasal cannula or high flow, you do that. And when you intubate the patient, it should be the most experienced intubator. That way it's very limited time that we'll be doing the procedure. Most places are talking about doing video laryngoscopy for first pass success. I say if you're really good at direct, go for it. When you're putting in the ET tube, making sure that the tube is clamped, because once you have the ET tube in, you still can aerosolize all of the droplets out if you don't clamp the tube. We are putting on filters in line with the tube before we connect it to the ventilator. That way we're also filtering out the virus in the ventilator itself once it's hooked up. So that's kind of the difference that we're doing for these types of patients. So it is a big difference than you know typical patients that you're intubating. You're just more aware of the staff that's involved, the surroundings, and then the hookups with machines and and your devices. And then at the end of the day, just making sure that you really don on and don off very well, because half of this stuff is when you don off your equipment, making sure that you're not contaminating things and spreading it unknowingly to the area, to the next person and things like that. Once you have them innovated, are there any specific considerations for vent settings? Yeah. And this is kind of where we go into two different phenotypes, the L and the H. So typically the L type is that happy hypoxemia that sort of gets worse. COVID's an interesting disease where we initially thought it was very ARDS-like and we'd be like, yes, PEEP, everybody needs PEEP. We're finding that they don't need a lot of PEEP. There's not a lot of alveoli recruitment that needs to happen. We need to stent the alveoli open with PEEP, but there's not a lot of recruitment ability in the alveoli themselves. And so patients aren't typically responding to that much PEEP. That being said, any different ventilator mode is going to work. Optimize your PEEP to whatever things that you do, whether it's to compliance or driving pressures or whatever. Optimizing the PEEP to what the patient is, different ventilator modes. And then APRV has been anecdotally noted by a number of different centers to be helpful, um, mainly because of stenting of the airways. The biggest thing with the ventilator is, is making sure that you're not doing ventilator-induced lung injury. A lot of these patients are having problems because of the ventilator-induced lung injury that happens during the phase of getting intubated and trying to support them. The L-type patients, like I said, need some PEEP and mostly just FiO2. And then when they turn to that H-type phenotype, that more ARDS patient, then yes, they do need a lot more PEEP and, and some more help from that standpoint. Another big thing when we're ventilating these patients, and this can happen in the ED if they're sitting there for too long, is sedation. These patients are very difficult to oxygenate and any bit of a coughing episode or a dyssynchrony with the ventilator really creates a hypoxic problem. And we call them, they cough and die because they literally cough and they desat down to 60% and take forever to re-recruit. And so sedation is going to be key on these patients. The problem with really deep sedation, like why not just knock them all out? Well, the problem is, is that they're on the ventilator for a very long time. The ventilator course can be anywhere up to 30 days. A lot of places are saying seven to 10, up to 14 days, and then as long as even a month. So we're talking about long periods of time on sedation because of all the viral shedding and everything and the risks, tracheostomies are not being done early. We're doing them later than we would normally do. So these patients are sitting on the vent sedated for a very long time and they get weak and they, there's a lot of critical illness myopathies going on. So sedation is tough, but in the very beginning when you're in the ED, I think you have to sedate them well so that they don't have a de-recruitment and then potentially get worse. As far as other things on the ventilator, you have to be very cautious of super infections. We were having a number of patients because they're on the ventilator for so long, they're getting the VAPs, they're getting the secondary bacterial pneumonias and, and causing those types of problems. So there's those types of considerations for the vent. Got it. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask, what is this proning treatment we keep hearing about? Is this like ARDS? 
I am so happy you asked that question. <laughs> the reason I went into the physiology with that first question is because it leads into the second the question you just asked about proning. So in general, the summary is going to be prone them all, prone them repeatedly. Proning works for both phenotypes. With the L-type or the happy hypoxics, they really respond to proning. And what we're doing and what a lot of places are doing is, is something called self-proning, meaning, hey, patient, flip over onto your belly, take a couple hours and take a nap or play on your device or whatever, and then when that time is up, flip them back. And the reason why that works is if we went back to the shunt physiology that was going on, if you can basically redistribute some of that blood flow and some of that ventilation to the non-damaged alveoli and try to re-recruit almost, that's going to help with that proning process. The other theory is that because we have this pulmonary vasoconstriction that happens, if you can redistribute the pulmonary blood flow into different areas and do that back and forth, that really helps these patients with oxygenation. And so those are kind of the two theories behind why proning works in that happy hypoxic non-intubated patient. If you switch to the sort of more ARDS-like picture and they have more of the lung compliance issue issues, they're going to respond to proning a lot more on the on the setting of recruitable lung and damaged alveoli and alveoli that's filled with proteinaceous fluid and things like that. And so more of the traditional ARDS proning part. One thing that is showing up in sort of the ICU side of things is that we're not just proning once. Typically in ARDS, you prone once and then you're good. With these patients, we're proning more than once. We're proning up to three, four times and it really recruits their lung. It helps them out. And so we're proning, unproning, proning, unproning, almost like you would do sort of in the pediatric population where you repeatedly change their positions. So that's kind of what's going on with the proning and, and physiologically why it probably really works. But across the board, everyone has kind of found that proning really helps these patients for kind of that whole spectrum of the respiratory failure. That's really interesting. Dr. May, I promise we didn't forget about you. We're actually going to hand you the most controversial topic, medications. We've now seen remdesivir, hydroxychloroquine, azithromycin, and latest is dexamethasone, all mentioned. Can you briefly cover where we are on these? Are there any I missed? So I think these are unprecedented times. There's been a big rush to get science out, to find some kind of treatments. We've seen some controversial studies that haven't been able to be replicated. I'm specifically thinking of hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin, but also some high-profile retractions in major journals like the Lancet and the New England Journal of Medicine. So I think we all need to kind of keep an open mind and realize that we're not going to have all the answers and really think about this in benefit versus harm terms. I think in the ED, a lot of this is not really as relevant, except perhaps I'll touch on steroids, but you're not going to be able to get remdesivir for a patient in the ED. There's been a lot of, a lot of issues. So I'll just touch briefly on the remdesivir. So remdesivir is an antiviral that people had high hopes would sort of help. And there was recently a large double-blinded randomized control trial, I believe, of about a thousand patients that was published in the New England Journal comparing remdesivir to no remdesivir. And basically what they found is it reduced the duration that patients were ill from 15 to 11 days. So whether you look at that an outcome, maybe not as good as mortality. So maybe it's worth it for the sickest patients. There's some evidence that Patients might benefit if we started earlier, and there's also compassionate use, which basically means patients that are really ill that don't have any other options, you can still get it for those patients. So at this stage of the pandemic, I still think we're trying anything and everything, but we're starting to realize that some of these things have moderate benefit and some don't. So the NIH-funded hydroxychloroquine trial was just stopped because an interim analysis basically showed that there would be only a 1% chance of any benefit if they continued it. So for patient safety reasons, it was stopped. So to, 
I think hydroxychloroquine has been debunked as a potential treatment. There might be some potential harm even from using this. I would be remiss as someone who is focused on antibiotic stewardship not to talk about azithromycin. I think azithromycin is thought to be the cure-all for any lung disease. You know, like it's used post-lung transplant to help with inflammation, quote unquote. There are some major complications that are potentially possible with azithromycin though. So I'm always usually talking about it in the case of acute bronchitis where we really shouldn't be using it. Don't use azithromycin unless you have an indication to use azithromycin and there are not too many of those. And then just beware that it can have some complications in the elderly who already have underlying cardiovascular disease and are on other medications. So I don't recommend azithromycin really for much of anything respiratory. Also remember that if you do have a true strep pneumonia, that there's a lot of resistance in many parts of the country to azithromycin. So I guess I'll, I'll get off my soapbox with azithromycin, but there was actually some recent evidence that early antibiotic use in patients with COVID-19 didn't have any benefit. So I know a lot of the times, you know, we don't have a lot of options. So we're obviously treating the sickest patients with broad spectrum antibiotics, and that's likely appropriate. But I think as we become more aware, those antibiotics are being de-escalated where there's not evidence that they're, that they're really helping, and they may be causing patients more harm due to adverse events and downstream complications with resistance. So that's in terms of antibiotics. So I would say if you suspect a secondary bacterial process or you're not sure what the process is and the patient is really sick, like they're septic, then you're going to treat them with broad spectrum antibiotics. But if they just have a mild case of COVID, you're going to send them home or you're just admitting them to the ward. I would not suggest those patients need any antibiotics. Finally, more recently, what's been promising, and I'd love to hear Dr. Stahl's take on this as well, has been a recent randomized control trial in the UK looking at dexamethasone versus no dexamethasone. So this was a large study. I think they had 2,100 patients in the treatment arm, and they had 4,300 patients in the control arm, and basically found that in patients that were the sickest, that were ventilated, there was a 30% reduction in mortality, and there was a 20% reduction in mortality in patients that were sick but not requiring mechanical ventilation. There's always been a lot of controversy with steroids and sepsis, and it may be that for this particular virus, especially with all the inflammatory component, that there may be some benefit to steroids. And even though dexamethasone was used, potentially other steroids might have benefits. So I'd, I'd love to hear Dr. Stahl's thoughts on all of those things. Absolutely. The dexamethasone theme is a very interesting topic. We've been in the critical care world. It's been run around back and forth for a number of years for ARDS treatment. And so there was a recent study, the DEXA-ARD study that came out that sort of showed maybe some positivity towards the dexamethasone. And so there's been back and forth evidence towards yes and no. And I think the study that you're referencing, it kind of makes an interesting point that maybe this is something that could help, not necessarily only because the anti-inflammatory component of the inflammatory syndrome that's going on, but also maybe on the ARDS component in lung recovery. And so I think time will tell and we'll see what happens with the dexamethasone. I think there's a number of centers, including my own, that's doing the dexamethasone. I think that it makes sense physiologically in those particular patients. We are doing it and we're seeing sort of what the effects are going to be. I will have to say that given all the different therapies that are available, there's things like tocilizumab, which is the anti-IL-6 medication. People, a lot of centers have been using that, including my own. We've been doing convalescent plasma as well. These are all different therapies to try to get the patients better from either an anti-inflammatory standpoint or even just giving them some immune response like the convalescent plasma. I would say that with all of that, I still don't think we found a miracle drug. I think that all of these things are helping somewhat, but not drastically. 
helping the patients. We're still seeing long ventilator times. We're still seeing really sick patients and still seeing the, uh, the mortalities and the morbidities. We are trying these things and I think time's going to tell and evidence is going to tell. My biggest thing is when we're talking about therapies and stuff, especially in the sick patients in the ICU, we're doing remdesivir early on to see if that helps. Mainly it's tincture of time and supportive therapy, really, really, really good supportive therapy at the end of the day, really good ventilation, making sure you're not doing ventilator um, induced lung injury, you're catching super infections, you're making sure they're not getting blood clots, they're not getting too weak and myopathic, watching for arrhythmias and hemodynamic compromise. So those are all the big things that we're doing, at least on the critically ill standpoint. As far as the inpatient side of just on general floors, a lot of centers are doing the remdesivir because it's kind of like the Tamiflu. I, I kind of equate the same. It's something that we can treat it with. It may not be the miracle drug, but it's you know having some positivity. And so giving it early on may help with the disease process. And that's usually what they're doing on the, on the medical floors. And if they get into this big inflammatory syndrome, we can prove it with markers and inflammatory markers and they're getting sicker, then we're looking at other things like convalescent plasma and tocilizumab and things like that. But at the end of the day, we don't really know. Fair enough. Okay, we're getting close to wrapping up. But Dr. May, can you quickly talk about the prognosis for COVID-19 patients? What risk factors make you higher risk? And are there any special populations? Yeah, so I think this is a really interesting virus. The early data suggested most people who get infected with the SARS coronavirus too do fine, like 98% of people will recover. But if you think about it, and the mortality, the case fatality rate, mortality has been a moving target because it's not like we're testing everyone that has the infection. So I think we do know that there are some groups that are high risk. So the groups that are the highest risk are going to be definitely age. So anyone over 65, especially if they have other comorbidities. And interestingly enough, it seems like patients that have asthma or COPD or lung disease may actually not be the highest risk patients. They're still at risk. But you know what we're seeing is because of the inflammatory component, it seems like the biggest risk factors are hypertension, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, cerebrovascular disease. It sort of makes sense when you think that there's myocarditis occurring, that there's this inflammatory vascular component with microthrombi, that those people would be doing the worst. Most of the deaths that we've seen thus far are still in those older age groups, particularly people that are living in congregate living facilities like nursing homes. But there are young people that do get really sick and even die. We think obesity is a risk factor. And then there's some really interesting data that's coming out, basically suggesting that there may be, uh, from genomic studies recently published in the New England Journal of Medicine, there may be a locus that makes you more genetically susceptible to getting infected and getting more severe disease. And there's been some interesting work looking at ABO blood groups and people that have O blood type may be less at risk of getting infected and then once infected getting severe disease and that A types may be more, but more work needs to be done in this area. It's a virus that confuses a lot of people. A lot of my infectious diseases colleagues don't get it either. Why do you have some people that are basically asymptomatic or have very mild illness? Sometimes you ask these patients and they really did have some symptoms, you know, like anosmia or something like that, but they didn't really notice their symptoms. And why are some people then getting critically ill in the ICU and getting PEs and getting strokes at a young age? So I think we're going to learn more about the environmental factors and the genetic factors that predispose people, as well as the other risk factors from a medical standpoint. And frankly, just how likely are you going to get infected probably has a lot to do with other things that are environmental, like, for example, the density of the population and what is the viral load you need to be exposed to in order to get you know, an infection. So I think there's a lot of unanswered questions, but we're learning a lot as we go on. And I'm sure we'll know more about this, but it's a very puzzling virus indeed. Last question. 
Can we just touch quickly on pediatrics? Anything special regarding COVID in kids? And what about this Kawasaki-like syndrome we keep hearing about? Yeah, so I'll take that question. So this is something that's come up in the last month and a half or so when they started noticing some of the pediatric cases in the UK and then I think in New York as well. In general, pediatrics have actually been somewhat spared from the really bad illness of the COVID. I think the CDC put out that about 2% of the tested positives are patients under the age of 18. So kids really are a very small subset of this. Whether that's because we're just not testing them because fevers in kids are very common or that they're just not sick or they're not getting it, I think that's a little bit convoluted. But either way, we're not seeing that many pediatric cases. However, most of the kids that do have it you know, end up being fine and with minimal symptoms. However, there is this phenomenon that they're starting to see, and there's been case series and little couplings of sort of this presentation of what they're calling now the MIS-C, the multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children. And so what this is, is kind of the same deal in the adults, just in children, of this hyperinflammatory response that happens. So the virus itself is kind of triggering the immune system and triggering the body to create this hyperinflammatory cascade, where all these inflammatory markers get released and then basically cause destruction to the body in this inflammatory state. And it's, it's very um, similar to uh, Kawasaki's disease as well as toxic shock syndrome. And so what they're seeing with this type of presentation is fevers that are like three, four days long, prolonged fevers, kind of high fevers, which kind of goes along with Kawasaki's, rashes, conjunctival injection, like red eye, red cracked lips, the palms and the soles of the feet, skin peeling, abdominal pain. So very similar to a presentation of Kawasaki's, sort of in the era of this COVID infection. So these patients are testing positive for COVID PCR, meaning they have the active virus, but also a number of the patients are testing positive for the antibodies, meaning they're negative for the COVID, but positive for the antibodies. So there's a question of whether this is an active disease thing, or if this is a post-infectious state that's sort of happening, meaning they had COVID, now they're recovering, and then they go into this inflammatory state. Either way, it's a little difficult to distinguish between Kawasaki's and this multi-inflammatory syndrome in children. But the treatments, it seems like it's the same, meaning that when they did the retrospect or the retrospective case article, they were treating most of these patients like Kawasaki has given them IVIG and patients were, were recovering for the most part. And just to go back to what Kawasaki's is, it's a childhood syndrome. Usually patients under the age of five that present uh, typical screening things will be, or typical symptoms will be prolonged fevers, usually after four or five days, continued fevers, other infectious disease workup negative. They come in with red cracked lips, palmar erythema and skin peeling, uh, swollen fingers and digits, the rash, sometimes some abdominal symptoms and conjunctival injection and, and erythema. And so those patients will have Kawasaki's, which is a vasculitis of the medium vessels. And the most significant thing that happens with those without treatment is coronary artery vasculitis and coronary artery disease. So heart disease at the end of the day. Either way, they are seeing this in some patients. It's a very small subset of patients. I think it's the case series that have been put out are like six patients, four patients, 20 patients was the highest one. And so it's not a lot of kids, but it is out there and it's being seen. So right now, I don't think we know a lot more about what it is and how to treat it other than they are responding to IVIG. Is this an overlap with Kawasaki's? It could be, but either way, that's how they're treating it and they seem to be responding to it or responding to the therapies. And then basically what you'll need to know going into the ED is when you're seeing the children, making sure you're asking those questions and looking for that disease and looking for those signs and symptoms and then thinking about, Ed, do I need to test for COVID? And is this something else that we need to be looking at? I think it's really interesting that we always suspected that some of these inflammatory syndromes, or there's even been some debate about like STEMIs and other things, that there's this big inflammatory component that may have a viral etiology. And I think Kawasaki probably is. It's probably not the same virus, obviously. 
And it's interesting that the age population that they're seeing this this illness in related to COVID is, well, they think related to COVID, right, is occurring actually in older children than the Kawasaki, which is typically, we learned, younger children under age five. And in this case, I think they've seen it even in some young adults. So so yeah, it still requires a high index of suspicion, and I'm sure we'll learn more about it as we move through this pandemic. Wow, that's really interesting. I think that wraps up my questions. Thanks so much to you both for being here. I would like to offer you the opportunity. Do you guys have any parting advice you'd like to offer new interns and medical students returning to clinical care during this pandemic? From my standpoint, I think emergency medicine, this is what we do. You guys are all going to be prepared. There's a lot to learn. It's definitely going to have an impact on your training in terms of if we start seeing more COVID-19 cases again, you may see less of the other things that we traditionally see. But I think as emergency physicians, we're very prepared to deal with this. This is sort of what we do. I think it is a great opportunity to think about how we can integrate public health into our medical education, you know, be it as a medical student or a resident. I think this really highlights some of the failures of our healthcare system and really our need to be more aware of public health. And then just want to remind people to try to stay safe and lean on each other in terms of your own wellness. Absolutely. I'll chime in as well. And I 100% agree with what you're saying. I guess my parting advice would be wash your hands a lot. Definitely make sure you protect yourself. This virus is going around, but don't forget there's other patients to treat as well. You're going to see these patients plus every other patient that comes into the emergency department and into the wards. This is a new era in medicine. It's very different. You're going to be walking into the hospital if you haven't been back yet, and everybody's wearing masks from the very front door screening. You're getting your temperature taken. You're wearing a mask the whole entire day. The only time you really take it off is probably to eat lunch, and you really got to be cognizant of sort of your surroundings. Some people can get very lax in the surroundings, meaning like, oh, I'm just hanging out with my buddy and we'll just take all our masks off and start palling around. And you you just got to realize that we're still in this pandemic and it's still prominent and we just got to make sure our hospital is safe and our hospital coworkers are safe and, and just keeping that in mind. And then being flexible with medical education right now, it is very strange. I know programs I'm involved in, everything's virtual now. It's weird. Everything's been canceled and it's definitely a different era right now for programs and education and, and the system. And so we're all working hard to try to figure this out and be very flexible with the information that's coming in because one minute we're intubating all COVID patients. The next minute we're like, man, we don't have to. One minute we're wearing all N95 surgical masks, headgear and everything. And now we're like, well, maybe we don't have to. And so it's, it's an evolving thing as we learn more and more information and just going with the flow and keeping yourself safe are the biggest things. All right. Dr. Jennifer Stahl, Dr. Lisa May, thanks again for sharing your expertise and knowledge. We at SAEM and Rams hope this podcast proves helpful to our members. 